Welcome to HEQ&A, the podcast of History of Education Quarterly. I'm your host, HEQ co-editor Jack Schneider. Every few weeks, we'll dive into recent work from the journal, asking authors how their projects challenge or extend what we know about a topic, exploring what's interesting and surprising about it, and then taking a step back to consider broader implications. In the second half of the show, we turn our sights to teaching, so if you're an educator, make sure to stick around until the end. And now, let's hear from one of our authors. Well, hello, uh, my name is Sarah Lynch. I'm an uh, assistant professor of history at Angeles State University in Texas, and I'm the author of Marking Time, Making Community in Medieval Schools. Well, simply put, my article is about what the later medieval school day and school year looks like. It also looks at why the school day, school year was organized in various ways. And that's not just the practical influences, like the influences of seasons and so on and so forth, but also at how these formats helped create a sense of community and identity among children and youth. So really, it's how the school year as a format, as a structure, helped the people kind of get more out of education than you would even think just like learning. It's also a way of constructing identity and community belonging. There has been a good bit of work done on conceptions of time in history and how those change. And some of that goes right the way back to the 1960s. So you have scholars like Jacques Le Goff, uh, E.P. Thompson, and more recently Gerhard Dorn van Rosen and Avner Vishnitzer, who kind of grapple with the idea that time is a construct and that humans are actually aware of this, like human societies are aware of this. And so they employ that knowledge in various ways to shape their societies, as it were. So this article, what it does is it marries that approach with the idea of making and defining communities. And there has been a lot of work done on making communities in in the Middle Ages in particular. That's a really big subject of study in uh, medieval studies. So basically how constructing experiences of time shapes community. Well, of course, I'm a historian of medieval education, so I wanted to use that those approaches, kind of meld them together to examine how education contributed to the socialization efforts of medieval communities. To be honest, I was actually inspired by the work of Ibn Khaldun. He's actually a 14th century North African scholar uh, who has who kind of formulated this idea called Asabia. And Asabia is usually translated, though there's a whole argument over that translation, of course. Asabia is usually translated as group feeling. And so my work explores how time and these temporal cultures helped create this sense of group feeling within a community, be that the local school community itself. So within the school, Um, the local community, in other words, the town, or kind of more broader ideas of community, or as I put it here, supranational communities, such as the church, Christendom, these ideas that were very important in the Middle Ages. 
anything about medieval education and especially elementary and grammar education is kind of surprising for a lot of people because they're like, wait, what? They had education back then? But I think what's interesting about my work is that communities and school authorities, be that uh, local town councils or local churches or whatever, used a lot of different tactics to acculturate pupils and students. So they're not just acculturating them by the materials they used in the classroom. They're not just acculturating them by controlling who could teach and so on and so forth, but they're creating a kind of immersive experience. And I also think my work acknowledges that people in the past often employed fun and even controlled chaos in a conscious way. Like, for example, in a lot of the carnival kind of things that are like part of wider community practices, uh, they actually ingrain them in the school year. And because they acknowledge that especially younger people needed a kind of outlet, they needed a, a pressure valve. I think nowadays we're really locked into this idea that how we experience time is set, that it cannot be changed. And for those of us who work in education or study education, that's especially a case. It's like, you must do this. We're, we must do X at Y time, et cetera, et cetera. But the more we understand how we experience time as a construct, well, that might allow us to approach our daily lives in a more flexible way and that we might be willing to look at other temporal cultures. There's this whole argument and some of it is very problematic about how quote unquote Western cultures, I go into it in the article, use clock time and non-Western cultures use event time or task time. But ultimately, I think a lot of this reminds us that we should be pivoting back towards that kind of event or task time. What we get done is more important than the time we take doing it. Um, and if anything, the current pandemic with its lockdowns and working remotely and so on and so forth has really made this very real for people, that the way we experience time is a construct. I'm just thinking, so many people have been saying how, oh, they couldn't remember what day of the week it was and so on and so forth. So our temporal cultures were dissolved and it's especially pointed for us in education. And so it's, it's really clear that many people need a temporal framework in which to function, but we also should be more willing to make adjustments to that framework so that it works best for us, works best for the communities we live in, and so on and so forth. The second half of the show is dedicated to thinking about teaching. We ask authors to put on their guest lecturer hats and take students into the weeds. What should they pay attention to, methodologically speaking? What else should they be reading if they want to take a deep dive into the historiography? And where are their opportunities for further research? So I think this article is valuable because it looks at a wide range of methodologies. I come from a very interdisciplinary based background. I, and I think that's really important to embrace methodologies from sociology, anthropology, and also from a wide range in terms of chronology as well. So I use everything from scholarship on temporal culture in late 19th century Ottoman Empire to uh, the enormous simply enormous body of scholarship on medieval community practices to personal accounts of people traveling into 
quote unquote, different temporal cultures in the 20th century. And so it's good to remind us not to restrict ourselves as students of history. I also think this is a good article to come at education in the Middle Ages for beginners. Students are, of course, familiar with timetables and academic calendars, etc. We are all in temporal frameworks. We're all in temporal cultures ourselves, um, even if we don't necessarily think about it. And so this article shows that medieval school children had comparative structures in their life. I also uh, brought in some of the festivals that were associated with schools in the Middle Ages. And uh, so there's a whole load of festivals I mentioned. I mentioned Boy Bishop festivals and some of the crazy festivals around, you know, Mardi Gras, or Tuesday Carnival. And I think students might find it useful to reflect on annual events in, for example, the modern North American schools, such as homecoming, as socialization efforts. But I do think the Middle Ages has an edge on homecoming because they literally had school sanctioned gambling and cockfights. So, yeah. So I could go on about this for a long time, but there's some good works to get started on. I kind of split these into two groups, one on like temporal culture and another on medieval education. For example, on temporal culture, I would recommend the following. Uh, Judith Bennett's A Medieval Life, Cecilia Pennefader and the World of the English Peasant Before the Plague. This is actually great because it's a it's a year in the life. It's very well researched. Okay, because Judith Bennett, she's a very important medieval historian, but she's talked about it in this very interesting flow of personal experience throughout the year. And it's, I think, a very valuable book to get you into the frame, the mental framework of the medieval year. And then there's Gerhard Dorn van Rosen's History of the Hour Clocks and Modern Temporal Orders. Uh, that's just a fantastic introduction to how we shape time, how we shape at least our experience of time. Then we have Ronald Hutton's Stations of the Sun, A History of the Ritual Year in Britain. And firstly, that's a reasonably priced paperback, so that's always exciting. But it has this amazingly wide chronological range that allows the reader to understand these changes across time and how festivals and rituals are used for various reasons throughout centuries and they might be neglected for a few centuries and then brought back usually for sometimes for reasons of nostalgia but often really for socialization efforts too and finally uh, Abner uh, Vishnitzer's Reading Clocks Alaturka Time and Society in the Late Ottoman Empire which delves into how the state actually began to formulate a temporal culture so these are all great works on temporal cultures and how Time is pliable, okay? It's malleable. Now, since I'm here, I have to do a shout out for works on medieval and Renaissance education because even university works on university education, but especially works on elementary and grammar in the medieval and Renaissance periods are all because for some reason, Elementary and grammar education and the study of that is viewed with disdain 
which is ridiculous because you're looking at the underpinning of all intellectual activity. And another great thing about looking at elementary and grammar education in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance is that it gives you an interesting glimpse into medieval socialization practice. So I would recommend there's a whole load of people out there. I would look at Grendler, Gale, Black. Uh, they work mostly on Italy, especially in the Renaissance period, early Renaissance period. Orm and Morn Cruz for England. Willemsen works mostly on the Netherlands, and she's particularly good for material culture of education. I myself also have an open access or free, and that's always exciting, mini monograph called Medieval Pedagogical Writings and Epitome. And that's a handy intro to what medieval commentators thought education should be. Well, I think there's a lot of scope for future research. Uh, this article is actually part of a larger project of mine on the medieval years. So at some stage that will emerge. But work really needs to be done. Now, I touch on it in the article a little bit. Well, I was constrained by how to make this a more cohesive work. But work really needs to be done on Jewish and Islamic temporal practices in education in the Middle Ages. I, it, a lot more. And there's some really interesting stuff out there, but more work needs to be done on it. Uh, I also think a lot more work should be done on temporal cultures and non-formal or rather not school-based education and training. All right. So, uh, for example, how temporal culture interacts with apprenticeship. You know, how do apprentices uh, engage in temporal cultures? And that's particularly interesting because if you look at pre-modern and early modern apprenticeship contracts, they tend to be, of course, very much about time. You know, it's seven years, it's five years, and those things change around a little bit. So I think a lot of work to be done there and a lot of work to be done on kind of like non-formal education such as training in monasteries that isn't explicitly about training in the classroom and so on. To learn more, check out History of Education Quarterly Online. The journal is published by Cambridge University Press, and it's carried by most academic libraries. You should also be sure to follow HEQ's Twitter handle, at HistEdQuarterly, which regularly sends out free, read-only versions of articles, and the show's Twitter handle, at HEQ&A. And don't forget, subscribe to the show so you don't miss forthcoming episodes. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. HEQ&A is produced at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Our producer is Jennifer Berkshire, and our theme music is by Ryan Shaw. I'm Jack Schneider. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>